Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple that you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Oscar Munoz, the former CEO and chairman of United Airlines. Now, Oscar led United Airlines through a massive turnaround, and you're going to love hearing how it happened because, boy, Oscar has a ton of insight and great stories. When you hear the story of this turnaround and what Oscar did, it's clear. As a leader, you've got to do more than just run smart strategy and solve technical problems. The real challenge is how do you do all that while also reaching the hearts of the people you lead? That was the driving force of the turnaround at United. And it's true for whatever challenges you're facing too. To make big things happen, you need to appeal to both the mind and the heart. And Oscar does both beautifully. So let's get into this great conversation with my friend and soon to be yours, Oscar Munoz. Oscar, one of the things I love about your book is you really learn a lot about the uh, airline industry. And, and you say that if you, if you like solving puzzles, there's nothing more fascinating than the airline business. Explain what you mean by that. I think most of us who fly a lot, which is everyone, we appreciate uh, the time, you know, being on time and having a nice meal and having a clean seat. Um, you, most people don't quite comprehend the, the level of complexity it's a very complicated world and dance of choreography of, of all the, the, you know, the pilots and the flight attendants and the, the meals and the gates you're coming into flying internationally to, you know, at the time when I was there, 70 plus countries, 180 million customers a year. It's just a, a complicated logistical effort that is coupling with the, the need to have a human level of interaction that you're comfortable with to drinking a, a cup of coffee that you enjoy. And so the puzzle is, how do you get all of that together? How do you put you know, the, the business end of it, manage the cost, take care of humans, deal with all the regulatory and compliance issues, um, and again, uh, remaining true to the friendly skies moniker that United has been so proud to fly for so many years. And you have technology being such a big issue that you got to be all over too. And, and you also say there's, there's no grander stage than an airport. What do you mean by that? You've written books and sometimes you take a little poetic license and a lot of TV shows, movies, are all, there's always a grand setting, either the finale of Die Hard or, or many of the romantic love stories about the parting of ways. And it's just a grand stage because it connotes so much more, right? It's a moving along, a separation or a reunion. There's just so much emotion tied to it. And I also find that our customers, right, they fly a lot. So it's very personal to them. Uh, and the concept of, of the emotion that you have towards your favorite airline or your least favorite airline is very high. And there's no conversation I can go anywhere that somebody doesn't learn what you do or what you've done that inevitably there isn't something. Let me tell you about <laughs> this one flight or this one period of time. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of human emotion tied into this business. So the puzzle piece is trying to manage all of those constituents. And you mentioned technology, which is a whole chapter on itself, but equally as important. Now, I understand you always try to be the last person to board a flight. What was your rationale for that? Oh, simple. And the world has changed and everybody's watching. And the, the uh, optics of the leader of a corporation getting in front of everyone else, getting seated first, 
uh, just wasn't my style or my brand. And frankly, someone always took my carry-on on, and so I would stick around and talk to people, both customers, and then walk on the on the plane at the last second. It was just a, a way of being able to say hello to a lot of different people, engage with the pilots, engage with the flight attendants, see customers as I was sitting down or outside. Uh, it was just something that was important for me to not be be perceived as that imperial person that needs special treatment or, or I don't I didn't travel with anyone necessarily uh, and so that was important to me. You know when you become CEO, you know people always want to protect you and shield you and do things for you and make sure that no one does this or no one does that. You know how did you break that down so people really knew? Hey, I want to be a human being like everybody else. Well, a, a funny story. Um, I initially came in. You know, I, it's like no, I'll rent a car you know, at the airport, my first day of the work, and, you know, where do I park? And and uh, a very person close to me who became my first chief of staff, Kay Jibo, pulled me aside in a room one day. She says, you know what? Knock it off. We're just trying to help you. And by you trying to be whatever you're trying to be, like a normal human being, is killing us. Just go with it, all right? We're going to have a car for you. We're going to do these things. You need to stick to the schedule and quit making it hard for us. And so there's a balance there where you do have to get to a lot of places at a lot of times. A lot of people are waiting for you and you have to acknowledge that's just part of the gig. And so I, you know, trying to balance the imperial nature with just the not, not, being, uh, not being counterproductive to people's work and effort is how I begin to balance that. You know, I want to go deep on on uh, the United Airlines turnaround that you orchestrated and how you lead. But first, I understand you you were born in, in Mexico. You you're the oldest of nine siblings, and I understand growing up, you had first and second lunch shifts because you couldn't fit everyone around the the, the same table. Is this where you earned your reputation for being great at? conflict uh, resolution? Because I know you had a great reputation working with the unions. Uh, well, you know, uh, we are all parts of, uh, of people we've met along the way, I think. And, and certainly my upbringing uh, with uh, eight brothers and sisters uh, certainly had a lot to do with that. And yeah, the first and second lunch was a, a funny thing. And in addition, when mom and dad came home from the grocery store, all the neighborhood kids had to come and help with the bags because there was multiple bags of groceries that we had to do. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think, um, I think my conflict resolution to be uh, just a, a tad serious uh, came from my, uh, my heritage and my upbringing. I, I grew up predominantly with my maternal grandmother for many years while I was living in Mexico before I came to the United States. And uh, we traveled to many homes. Uh, she didn't have her own home, but she was never homeless. You know, the, the concept of familia in, in, in Spanish is a, is a more deeply resonant word. And so we always had a place to stay. And just, you know, going around the country with her uh, for so long and my memories of, you know, not feeling unsafe. I always had her coarsened hand, you know, just, you know, as I was walking on dusty trails, so to speak, and she was always there. And 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 how she managed things. She never had a, a bad word for anyone, was always upbeat, was always friendly. And, you know, that's your formative years, and you learn that that's an important part. And so I've carried that over into many of the contentious issues you have in business, of course, and difficult decisions you have. I often find that truly listening to both sides of the story, inevitably somebody's facts are incorrect or somebody's premise is not entirely on point. And if you can begin to fix and, and nick at those things, you begin to solve contentious problems. So I credit that to my mother, my heritage, um, and a lot to you know the, the experience of the people I've met along the way. 
you're a leader who seems to appreciate very direct feedback and you, you, you just are very straightforward and honest. To, and was there a particular bit of coaching you got earlier on in your career that was really instrumental for you? Because I'm sure you were a high flyer coming up. Yeah, no, there was, there's been several. <laughs> I think it's an important part of, of uh, I, I have a friend who's always said that sharing is caring. And I've always found that to be so true because if somebody truly cares, they will share with you. And as you drive them to a point where they don't care, they'll just let you go on your way. I, I think probably the most, uh, the, the most interesting story to your question was when I had moved from, uh, I had been a, a young hotshot at Pepsi and at a relatively young age, moved to Coke at probably skipping a couple levels of the normal, you know, sort of career uh, hierarchy. And so I was feeling pretty good about myself um, and uh, walked into this new environment. And, and, and Coke and Pepsi cultures are, are probably as different as the city of New York and the city of Atlanta, right? Just you can, all of you, everyone's traveled to both. And one's a more of a genteel Southern culture. New York is, of course, New York. And I think the culture at both companies were that way. So I came from this high-charging, high-flying, up or out, you know, constantly looking around to, to see who might be, um, you know, looking out for, like, looking for your job and such, uh, to this much more quiet, genteel, and in generally older community. And so, again, as a young person, I think I was 26 at the time, I learned the, uh, the, the hard lesson, you can never judge a book by its cover, because I saw people that were much more senior than I am, and I immediately assumed, gosh, you know, this is, this place is full of ancient dinosaurs or whatever term you might want to use. Um, and uh, my boss, back to your question, at my sort of mid-year performance review of something, you know, he does all that stuff and he's telling me all these great things about the work we're doing. And then he did this magical thing. He, he took the HR document, folds it and pushes it to the side. I remember this vividly. And he says, now if I could, Oscar, just as friends, share a couple of things. So I'm thinking, yeah, he probably wants me to date his daughter or something kind of, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that's the way my thinking was. And he said, and he said magic, the magic words that I remember to this, you know, like, remember all of these things. Um, he said, you know, you're really good at what you do. And, 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 uh, and if, there's, if there's one bit of feedback I would give you, he said, you're not yet as good as you think you are. And I'm like, wait, that didn't sound like either dating your, your daughter or a compliment. <laughs> And, and clearly what he said is, is I was way ahead of myself, right? The, the, today's term of slow your roll, uh, listen and learn, which is a, a, a common premise in the book. And it all came from that, a little bit of the conversation, because what he said, you know, hey, you're really good at what you do. Just slow down and let others catch up with you. Learn to involve others in the decisions that you make. And back to the uh, judging a book by its cover, the people, you know, the one woman in particular that I remember vividly, she kind of looked like my grandmother. And now, as you got to listen to her and understand her background, she was a Harvard MBA, not 24, 25 years before, but a Harvard MBA nonetheless, with all the intellect and all the drive and all the experience, which I think is the thing that I teach, and you probably do the same thing, David, uh, with people younger, not because we're, experience does lend a lot to us. And one of the things that you learn is that experience is valuable. And if you just slow down a little bit and listen to the people above you who are wanting, who do care about you and want to share, it's a really meaningful point. So that, that comment, you're not yet as good as you think you are, felt like a spear coming across the, you know, the, 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 the office just impaling me because I was angry. I went through all those seven stages of grief and, oh, that's good. I'm, you know, I'm doing this. But it helped me immensely begin to appreciate and genuinely listen to the people around me. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, let me ask you, what's a one-on-one -on -one session like with Oscar Munoz when you're giving someone some coaching? I have found that 
waiting for that particular time frame when you have this, this tense situation, right? We're doing reviews and I gotta tell you how you're doing, is usually not the best time to give any, unless it's great advice. Hey, things are going great, David. Just as we've talked all along the way, you're hitting on these marks, I see this, and you know, it's great, keep it up. That's an easy one. But I find that the first time you have to have a tough conversation with somebody in that heightened pressure of a, of a performance review is, 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 it doesn't work as much because it, it implies my performance, my performance measurement, what goes in my records, potentially my compensation are gonna be affected by that. And there's a degree of, of anger and resentment that why the hell are you just telling me that now? Um, and you have all those things. So I try to talk to people on a fairly regular basis. Every time I observe something that maybe isn't flowing the right way, um, and so to kind of get a basis for a conversation uh, about something that might be a good development. Um, probably my most famous structure when I do have a meaningful conversation, because you find that people do not get good feedback throughout the course of their career. And especially when you get to be a CEO in those higher levels, um, a lot of your senior folks have gotten to where they are on their merits and their performance, but I don't know that if everyone's ever touched on the more personal nature of performance. How you act, how you make others feel is a lot of my, my phrase. It's like, hey, you're, you're incredibly smart and you know where you're headed, but you're leaving everyone behind. So being right does not mean everything's gonna get done. And so phrases like that and working with folks. And, and um, when I have those conversations, whatever they might be, here's how you emote, here's what you show in your face, here's your body language, all those little personal things. You don't appear open, I would say maybe, David. And, and then of course, there's, there's kind of a pushback from the individual. And I always say, you know, listen, go home, talk to your loved one, just go home and just say, hey, there's this crazy new guy at work and he pulled me aside and he's telling me all this crap about this or that and just watch your loved one and how they react. And David, to this day, I've had that conversation I had hundreds of times probably. I've never had one person come back and say, yeah, my spouse disagrees with you. It's always this kind of sheepish, yeah, you know, I talked to my wife and she kind of said, <laughs> well, honey, maybe you could be. And I think that's the most meaningful, right? It just share things that you observe in your opinion, have them double check with someone else that's closer to them. And, and it's amazing what that happens. And, uh, and then there's, of course, a hundred other tactics that you know so well, but I think that level of human interaction that's personal, that lets someone know that you genuinely care about them, which is why you're sharing, is an important thing. And I don't think the performance review is a good time to do that. Yeah, if that's performance reviews a surprise, that's a, that's a problem, no question about that. You know, I know you were president of uh, CSX, a great railroad company, and you were slated to be the next uh, CEO there. Tell us how you made the decision to go to United. I always like to get inside of the heads of, of how leaders really make these big career shifts. What I know about myself is that I bridge the gaps between people. Always been able to do that. I always do it with logic and reasoning. I always do it, you know, if I need to with a little force, but mostly I will listen to you and hear and understand. Um, our journey at CSX for the time I was there, which was a long time and ascended from CFO to eventually COO and then president, I had learned a lot about that company. I knew what the future held. We had turned it around. We were a seven billion market cap company when I started, uh, probably got over close to 60 billion by the time I left. So we had had a lot of success. Knowing myself, what I had been able to do with the team at CSX was bring all that together. The next few years as CEO, were gonna be more of the same. And in essence, just really planning for my succession with a great team that we had built behind us. Again, nothing wrong with that, I earned that thing. 
But then you're then you get this this option, right, of a company that's broken, uh, disenfranchised, disengaged, disillusioned employees, uh, an industry that I know a little bit about but not a lot. And um, I, I was a conversation with myself. It's like you know what you do best. You know the people there. You know you can bridge a lot of those gaps. And do you have the energy and desire to have another turnaround in your career? And it wasn't the title, because the title was coming one way or the other. It wasn't money or adulation, because frankly, the airline industry pays less than what we were able to earn in a company that has such high margins and high equity value. But it became about my abilities, knowledge of contribution, knowing what I could do, and a desire to, to, to lead my own rather than be part of a team was the concept. Now, it's infinitely more complicated than that, David, and there's a lot of decisions because there's the people that brought you to the first company, and how do you deal and interact with them? They've trusted you and given you these opportunities, and now you're, in essence, turning your back on them. And then, of course, the dread and trepidation of walking into another business that you don't know a lot about, and then, of course, all the things that happened subsequently that well, were, were not easy, and we went through a lot of issues. But, um, but again, uh, the, uh, the leadership aspect is if you know who you are and what you know you can do well, you're going to be successful because as good and bad as the things went at United, the thing, my special skill in bridging the gaps between all these, these large voids inevitably proved to be a little bit of the secret sauce. You were on the board of United, so you at least had a little bit of information about what the company was like. You had a good sense there. It was a transportation industry, a different kind, obviously, than railroad. So you, that was something that gave you some 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 knowledge, expertise to, to take into the role. But you, you touched on it a little bit. What did you inherit in 2015? You know, I... You know, I, I've learned it was called disunited airlines or divided airlines or, you know, but anything than united. Tell us, tell us what you walked into. Yeah, anything but united. I think my first, uh, my first interview was with the Wall Street Journal, and uh, they asked me the same question. And I was very direct and frank. It's like, you know, um, I find that our workforce is disengaged, disenfranchised, and disillusioned. And I am, uh, I am embarrassed to say that as a board member, I did not see this. Uh, early on, and we should have, and uh, the task at hand is going to be a formidable one. Um, and that's what I learned, and that's what I said, and uh, and so promptly uh, made the decision that I needed to learn a lot more. I think, again, leadership is lessons are, when you have a turnaround situation, it means that a lot of things are broken. Which of those many things that are broken you do first is the platform for the eventual success and change that you have to do. So how do you find that one thing? And by the way, there's no shortage of people telling you what's wrong. But, you know, you had to figure out for yourself. And, and my decision, based on my, my heritage, my upbringing, my experience, and, uh, was I need to get to the front lines and I need to hear from them what they think. As circuitous and as mixed and as broad uh, uh, conversations I'm going to have across the system, I'm going to get a sense of something. I don't know what that is, but give me some time and I'm going to go figure that out. So it's what I said. Of course, the street reacted like, what the hell does that mean, right? That's like, sounds expensive, sounds time consuming. Um, customers are like, hey, what about us? And so on. And so that was the, uh, the first, uh, that's the things that I found and then my in initial instinct on how to fix it. So you went on this listing tour uh, and you, you wanted to find that first right thing to, to go after. How did you define that? When you did the listing, what was your net impression that you had to, that this was going to be the primary focus? In my initial sort of tour of different uh, places, I, you, know, you, could, you could almost, you know, again, part of listening, uh, being a good listener and having an intuitive sense about people around you is I could feel 
people as they smiled and took pictures or congratulated me that there was something deeper behind there. There was a, 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 a desire to speak, kind of almost a help me kind of concept. There was, a, there was just something that I couldn't, that I, I couldn't tell. And so that was my instinct. That was my first instinct to go out there. So there was no process that just put me out there every moment of every day, nighttime, you know, we worked 24 by seven. And so we went to, I went to them in the places they worked and the process was simply just asking, you know, hey, tell me about, you know, just getting, whether it's a large room of, of maintenance folks to, uh, you know, two flight attendants walking by to gate agents, you know, in their, in their rest area. Uh, it was just a function of trying to get a sense of what they were thinking and what they were feeling and what was broken. And I wish I could tell you that in that conversation, I gleaned it all. It actually confused me even more because there were so, so many things that were broken. And uh, a couple of weeks into this listening tour, I was beginning to worry. It's like, you know, I'm getting a lot, but I'm not getting a common thread or not that I, not that I could discern. And it took what is probably a seminal moment in the United Turnaround story. It's on a flight, um, me asking a flight attendant that was there, just walking up to her, uh, Amy Sue is her name, and, and asking her, um, you know, just, hey, I'm Oscar, and I'm just, you know, kind of walking around trying to get a sense. And um, her emotion, uh, her, her, her strong desire to not speak to me was evident. But as I kind of began to walk away and I touched her gently, she broke down and said, you know, what are magic words inside of United? She says, Oscar, I'm just tired of always having to say, I'm sorry. And, and what that means is, I'm, you know, she had to, every day, I'm sorry your coffee sucks. I'm sorry we're late. I'm sorry we can't, you know, seat you next year. Oh, and, and as a human being, constantly having to apologize for things and policies and procedures and processes that you have nothing to do with and having that be your everyday existence, having no input or value, be, makes you become me. That's where the term disengaged, disenfranchised, and disillusioned came from. It's like, it's, it's almost hopeless. I'm just gonna come and do my work and I've lost. And when you have a brand like the Friendly Skies and you wanna be customer centric and you wanna do the wonderful smiley face things that we wanna do, you're not gonna be able to do that with a, with a, a work group that is in that stage. And that was my, my learning of that conversation. Now it would take time for me to convince my senior leaders, my board, and inevitably investors that that was what we were gonna do first, which was in essence regain the trust of our employees before we could do anything else. Yeah, that's a really simple concept that's very hard to do. Uh, in my business, I, I, I've worked with unions and, and franchisees, and, and sometimes the personal attacks when you're out on this listening tour can be, you know, pretty tough. You know, tell us about one of yours, and how did you handle it? There was many. Um, there was, uh, there's the ones that are one-on-one -on -one when our general counsel was with me, and somebody just jumped out of his seat, looming large over me, and uh, we thought that was gonna result in some physical uh, activity that did not. But probably the most one, the one that I, I tell is uh, going into a, a Houston hangar where we repair aircraft, so a very large workspace. Uh, mechanics are a rare breed unto themselves. You know, they know they, they repair airplanes and they know how to do that and they're very professional at that process. But at that time, we hadn't solved their contract and so they hadn't been paid up to industry standards. So you can imagine that emotion. In addition, work rules. Um, we still had the merger where you know United repaired aircraft in one way and Continental repaired them in a different way and trying to sync those things, sync, all of that. So everything was, and these are salt of the earth people. It's like, give me a plane, give me the parts, 
give me the time to fix it and I'll fix your airplane. You do none of those things, you're gonna have trouble. So I walk into this room and again, um, it's you know one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning and it's a large group It's because aircrafts get repaired overnight, not during the day. So it's the largest work group. And so um, uh, an angry crowd for sure and are all not wanting to be gathered to have some punk come in that they don't know who, who I am. They, they know I don't come from the industry. And uh, although they have some inkling from my previous unions that he's not that much of a jerk um, sort of backdrop, but standing there trying to talk with them while they're all yelling and screaming, like, get out of here. You need to fire all these, you know, so just very emotionally and letting them get out of the system. Me dropping the, the, the crummy little mic that we had jumping on a picnic table with, you know, a few hundred people surrounding me and just screaming, you know, in order to talk, uh, and then and, and confronting the conversation, particularly the question, yeah, 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 BS, we've heard all this stuff before. And my pushback was, you have. The CEO of the corporation has been here at two o'clock in the morning, on top of a picnic table at this hangar, asking you a very simple question. How can I help? What can I do? And what you're screaming and yelling at me isn't actionable. Fire everyone. Get away, get out of here, go, you know, go home, whatever. That, none of that is actionable. And so there was a, a particular leader, Arnie is his name, that I've come to know over the years, who was one of the more vocal. And uh, we ended up being a one-on-one -on -one engagement. We're back and forth for uh, a, probably an uncomfortable amount of time for others, but not for me, because I knew you had to break through with this stuff and turning tail and running or, and letting them win in that. It wasn't even a win-lose situation. It was, I need to hear from you. Give me some things. Uh, and that proved to be very pivotal because as we solved that particular union, Arnie and some of his folks were, were there who would say in the room when you're not there, I like this guy. He's actually different. He does want to work and listen. We can trust him. And again, in these podcasts, I hear lots of things. And one of the things I've heard recently is that trust travels at the, at the speed of vulnerability. So to your question, standing there, listening and taking it all in and knowing that I don't know what they're talking about necessarily, but I'm willing to help was a sense of vulnerability that they eventually grew to be a level of trust and ability to work together. And that was a big deal why we solved some of our union contracts in those early days. A people first, rebuild the trust with employees mandate. You know, that sounds great, but it sounds a little soft. It sounds a little fluffy. You know, how did you go about, first of all, just getting alignment with your senior team so that you knew that they were going to be committed and all in on this strategy? Was there a lot of pushback? There was, um, you know, it was foreign, right? They all had their ideas of what we should be fixed first. And again, no, there was no shortage of things to be fixed. I had a little um, health aspect that I had to step away for a little bit. But when I came back, right when I came back, one of the first things we did was gather that thing and continue the project that I was on. I was gonna go out, listen, come back, gather the team, share my information and data, get everybody involved, and then let us collectively determine what our first big thing was gonna be. And so there was a lot of conversation, a lot of consternation about the things that we should do and a lot of disagreement. But uh, in, a, in a world where magic happens, on a day where I get a call from my doctors that there's a, a new heart waiting for me, uh, it is the, the you know, kind of the final day where we're determining kind of what our next big step is. And since I didn't have to be at the hospital till later that afternoon, I went to our, our, our offsite um, hotel. And uh, that morning, as a group, 
there was a unanimous vote that after all the, the, the concept of regaining the trust of our employees was gonna be the first collective mission. And it was important for me to get that done because I did not know what would happen to me, obviously, uh, going in for a heart transplant and all those little things. Um, and, uh, and that's how that came about. So yeah, it took a lot of effort. It, it didn't take, it wasn't a coercion. It wasn't me being the CEO saying, you have to do it this way. It was recognizing the value and talent in that room and having them coalesce on what was an important first step. And, uh, and again, that's how United's turnaround got started. Now you listen to this podcast, so you know how much I love learning about leadership from some of the world's greatest leaders. We make it a priority to break down the insights from our guests into practical steps so you can apply what you learn from our episodes into your own leadership style. A lot of times, though, it can be easy to listen to an episode and forget what you learned. That is exactly why I created the Weekly Leadership Plan. Every Sunday, I send out a weekly leadership plan that lays out in three simple steps the key learnings from that week's podcast. It only takes about five minutes to read, and it gives you practical steps you can apply to your leadership process for that week. Like everything we do at How Leaders Lead, it's completely free, and you can sign up for it at howleaderslead.com right now. This weekly leadership plan is a great way to prepare for your week each Sunday evening, and I hope you'll sign up today at howleaderslead.com slash plan. One of the big problems that you had at United is that the company seemed to try to, you know, save its way to success, you know, reduce the number of routes, you know, get smaller so you could be more efficient, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. How did you instill a growth mindset? Everything I've ever done, every career I've been of has been about growth. Um, if you look at the CSX history, initially, at least when I arrived, it was a big cost issue. Uh, it was also, it was a growth issue, but at any cost, you know, and nobody said you should grow at any cost ever. <laughs> you know, you need to grow, but you need to be mindful of your margin. So um, businesses, uh, as you know, do not thrive on being static. And so growth is key. Um, the problem with being that being the solution at United at that time is we weren't ready for it. We had gone through all these cost-saving initiatives that had crippled people. While we didn't have the customer mindset to grow to all these places, and so we needed to start with the trust first. But the growth thing came shortly thereafter. Uh, we began to hire the right people for the for the team. The the United um, the global network has always been defined as one of the more complex puzzles that need to be solved. And anybody that can solve that puzzle is really going to be you know is really going to make it work. And so we need to we need to set out and the, the solution to that puzzle was growth. We had an amazing level of capacity to fly to so many places. We didn't have the aircraft, we didn't have the, the team customer spirit, and we didn't really have the money or the conviction internally, and we didn't have the support of Wall Street. Growth in our industry is verboten because too much capacity brings down price, and that's the endless history of this airline. Uh, we were able to uh, build a strategy and put it into place where we not only grew, but we grew at ridiculous levels beyond what norms are in that company while growing our margins. And when we first announced that, uh, we were on the floor of the stock exchange and I was on TV and our stock had dropped 15% that day when we announced this, this growth plan. And oh my God, oh my God. And as I tend to be somewhat flippant sometimes, because we had strong conviction about our strategy. 
And I said, yeah, you know what? It has dropped a lot. It's probably a really good buying opportunity. And by November of that year, our stock had, had increased dramatically. We delivered that three-year plan a year early. And so, again, everything comes into places, you know, and you know this, you know, how leaders lead. It, there is no prescription. There's no template. It has to start with something that is important to you. And for me, it was this listening and learn, understanding what needed to be done first. And once you have that platform, then you go to town on all the strategic things. Because you're right, the softness uh, and the, the cute little fuzzy stuff, uh, if that's all I did at United, we wouldn't be where it's at. The fact that we were able to use that as a propellant to get our strategic efforts and the growth that you see now at United is the key measure that, that I think has made it successful. So you go on this listening tour, you're all fired up and you're ready to execute the strategy that you're putting together. And then on the 37th day, now listen to this listeners, the 37th day as a new CEO, you have a heart attack. You know, tell us about it. Yeah, it was a, it was the mother of all heart attacks, by the way. It really blew up that heart. <laughs> um, this is probably a little bit of a PSA and I think it's important. Heart disease is the biggest killer in America by far. And it's the biggest killer because the symptoms are many and varied, and they're different for men and women. And we often don't know that we have the issue. Uh, people perceive that, you know, as somebody that's overweight or eats badly is, a, you know, is akin to a walking heart attack. Uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, heart disease is so genetic in nature. Uh, I have a good friend who's a cardiologist who would always say things like, you know, you, you'd be surprised at how relatively young and fit uh, are the people that die on my operating table. Um, and I remember the, those dramatic moments. Um, and then he'd always tell us things, you know, if you ever feel anything weird, call 911 because, you know, you, the worst you can be is embarrassed that you have indigestion or something. Uh, and so uh, I was an avid runner and biker. Uh, I was a vegan on top of this. So I was not a walking heart attack kind of issue. But on a fateful morning, October 15th of 20, 37 days into the job, um, after coming back from Iran, I hear my phone buzzing across the room. And as I walk to get it, my legs begin to feel a little wobbly. Another step, I actually fall to my knees. I feel a little clammy. And his words came rushing back. Uh, it's like, okay, this feels weird. So uh, and he also had said, you know, call 911 immediately, as I said. But he added something that was, you know, I thought pretty dramatic. He said, and when you reach 911, immediately tell them where you are, which, duh, right, makes sense. But then he added, because you may not make it past the phone call. And I remember exactly where I was and exactly his facial expression when he said it, because I remember thinking, okay, it's a little dramatic, but fast forward to my situation, I'm walking, I'm crawling, I see my, my cell phone and I see my landline. You'll remember what a landline is. Um, and because I'm in the 50th floor of an apartment building in Chicago and I finally need somebody to find me, I need to tell them because I may not make it past this phone call. So I crawl the phone, call 911, tell them where I am, crawl some out of the front door to unlock it. And 37 minutes from my, so 37 days into the job, 37 minutes, I am in the hospital at Northwestern on ECMO, which is a heart and lung machine. So, you know, on life support in essence, because my heart had blown up, um, muttering things like, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this, which is particularly on brand for me. Uh, but that's the story. <laughs> that's, I mean, and, and um, you know, inevitably led, inevitably led to a heart transplant because the heart was pretty blown up. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the story there is one for all your listeners to just remember that it is important for you, your loved ones. Uh, heart disease is a serious thing and you never know when it hits you, 
But if you get treatment pretty quickly, it is absolutely survivable because you look at this ugly mug, you know that that's the case. Now, not everyone requires a transplant, um, but there's a lot of things that they can fix if indeed you catch it on time. Yeah, you had, as you said, you had the mother of all heart attacks. I mean, basically, your heart was destroyed. You had to have a heart transplant. And I understand you turned down the first heart that uh, you had the opportunity to have. What was the logic flow on that? And you know, tell us how that story ended. The process for acquiring an organ is uh, is very complicated and uh, you know very fair. No one can buy their way onto a line. You have to you know there's a lot of different things. You have to get into the right place and in the right hospital and get on the list and then wait for things. So it's a very tense period because you're waiting for in essence someone to perish so you can take their organ. So it's not like an exciting period where you're like, hey, I can't wait for someone. Um, to die so I can get their organ, right? So there's a couple things that happen. Hearts now can be uh, transplanted, even if they have some level of, of medical history that may not be the best thing you want to do. There's a sense of illness, addiction, uh, possible you know, AIDS. There's just a host of things that can happen. They can fix a lot of those things now, but they have to tell you. It's like, hey, David, we have, a, we have an organ for you, but we have to tell you that it comes from a, a, a donor that you know, died with, an, with a needle in her arm, which is the case with my first call. And so you have this decision to make because you don't know when the next call is coming. You don't know if you're ever going to get the call. Do you want to take the risk of taking a possibly infected organ to put into your body for the rest of your life? And you have to make that decision. So it was, um, it was traumatic and emotional at the time trying to make the And then they only give you 20 minutes because you know, there's somebody behind you that's waiting in line. So uh, my wife and I were driving around looking for homes in Chicago and called, uh, called our children, and everybody had a good cry and, and laugh and basically said, well, Dad, it's up to you. <laughs> um, so I didn't know. I get on the phone call, and I don't know what prompted me to ask this, but I said, hey, the next person in line for this heart, you know, what situation are they in? And there was a woman's voice in the background that probably shouldn't have said this necessarily, she said something to the effect, he's going to take it immediately, meaning clearly the next person in line was at a point where they did not, they were not going to have a choice. And that made my decision very simple. It's like, let them have it. They, you know, they clearly in a, in a worse situation. I can wait. I think I have plenty. And then just, you know, four days later on my birthday, I get a call with my heart that I have now. Wow. You know, that's, that's a powerful story. And, and you describe yourself as a storyteller. And in fact, you really believe that the storytelling skill is a very important trait for a leader to have. You know, why is that? I think we forget as leaders, and you, you strike me as the same, David, we can get caught up in ourselves, our intellect, our strategic mindset, our education and learning and how to present things logically and, and, and attack the mind in trying to solve issues and trying to prove to people how intelligent your path is. We also learn over time that the path to true engagement and true re release of someone's discretionary effort is not only capturing the mind, but the heart as well. And that's storytelling. You know, we can all, you and I can sit and, and give a very technical transportation and prove mathematically, historically, empirically, uh, anything. But to get the people that work in our business, and you had the same kind of uh, people in yours, uh, these are salt-of-the-earth humans who come to work, earn a paycheck, have lots of issues at home, they don't have a lot of money necessarily, and what they do have in their life is the place they work and how they feel about that. And, and for me, 
Capturing both of those things is important, and I have found that the best way to capture those is to tell stories or be part of the story. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Oscar Munoz in just a moment. But you know, the turnaround at United started by regaining the trust of employees. And it's true. Your people have to know that you care about them if they're going to get on board with bigger strategies and ideas. And Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner of the Women's National Basketball Association, has a unique way of building trust with the people she works with. So I come into the WNBA, and go into that meeting four days in, I'm like, the players don't trust us. So we did some small things of symbolic value through the fall of 19. And then the players were like, oh, Kathy gets us. For instance, and we're the WNBA, you know, they don't fight charter like the men's leagues do. Yet we had a playoff game where the two teams in the playoffs had to fly, you know, west to east with virtually no day's rest. They were going to have to take red eyes. They were going to have to play that night. And so I basically approved a charter flight for them. Doesn't sound like a huge thing. Was a big deal to those players because they said, Kathy gets it. She's about our health and safety. So that was something little that I did, you know, that built trust. Go back and listen to my entire conversation with Kathy Engelbert, episode 39, here on How Leaders Lead. You're obviously a great communicator, but but leaders aren't always perfect. And and tell us the story of Flight 3411 and what may have been your biggest communications mistake. Oh, my God. It was maybe my biggest uh, sort of mistake ever. Uh, so Flight 3411, that was the, the dragging of that customer. Dr. Dow is his name. The story is, is complicated only because, first of all, social media back at that time in early 2017 as prominent as it is today, and as many things that go viral or everyday kind of an issue, we've been looking and researching. We may have been the first global corporation to get hit by this viral sort of Twitter backlash. Uh, in fact, there were uh, between 400 and 800 million, I've gotten different views of Weibo watches in China when Dr. Dow said he was Chinese. He was actually Vietnamese, but nevertheless, uh, China got very involved very quickly. So I became globally infamous for two reasons. One. Um, the circumstances of the environment, which are always, this is the key thing, circumstances, while really important and really truthful, may be completely irrelevant in a world where a human being is getting the holy crap beat out of him, right? And, and that, he was basically drug off the plane, right? Th- th- yes, that's, that's the part that, that I missed horribly, right? I, the facts were that he wasn't a particularly good actor in a lot of ways. He had a history. Uh, it was the Chicago police, not United. It was United Express, not United Airlines. In fact, there was only one United employee in the vicinity, and there was a supervisor who was watching like the rest of us aghast with what was happening. So those were the facts. Um, and, uh, and so the initial response was, hey, our employees were trying to help, um, and, and, you know, and this, this person is a bad person, which you know, clearly was the wrong thing to say. I also used a term, this is back to Twitter, um, our initial response by somebody on staff had said that we had been overbooked and had to remove customers in order to make room for other people. The term overbooked in our industry is a regulatory, a huge regulatory, you know, bugaboo. It's like, you know, just you just don't want to use that term because regulators will come into play. And so the thought was, let's get rid of that word. And so the word reaccommodated came into play, which doesn't sound like <laughs> overbooking, but when a human is being dragged and beaten off an aircraft, the word reaccommodation is a 
awful, awful choice of words. I am sure you'll agree, as did the rest <laughs> of the world. That was my gaffe. I let that happen on my watch. There's no one. People say, well, you should have had people around. It's like, doesn't matter. Um, you know, that mistake is yours. Um, but you also learn that it's never too late to do the right thing. And so a couple of days later, everybody said, you got to go. You got to go on TV nationally and you got to talk about this. And of course, the coaching that you get is to how to tell and, and not spin, but hey, this wasn't united. It was this. It was this. You know, all of the different circumstances um, and somewhere in the middle of the night uh, before that session that morning, I, I, I literally got out of bed and fell to my knees, not being a pious person necessarily, but uh, kind of looking above for some level of, 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 of direction. And I remembered, I, I talk a lot in the book about my maternal grandmother who I grew up with. And uh, she was an incredible human who never complained, never blamed anyone. And it's, those are, that's my formative education as a human. And something about that experience came back, my heritage, my, my grandma, and all those things. And, and I felt a calm. I didn't know what I was going to say that, you know, in a couple hours that morning. Um, but what I did say was not what anyone expected. Um, because when they asked the question, waiting for me to start spinning, um, and I said, you know, it was horrible. And it's my fault. I let policies and procedures of running an airline get in the way of doing the right thing for another human, and that should never happen. And uh, the funny side is the audible gasp in her, in her ear from the producers, like, wait, wait, he's, he, we, that's not what he's supposed to say. He's supposed to try to spin, and we're going to try to catch him in this. But the louder gasp was my team behind me, who was like, wait, that's not what he's supposed to say either. Uh, but, you know, David, and, and you know this because you faced many of these situations, I knew that night that I would have to talk about this for the rest of my life and to recant this meandering, blame somebody else story. Well, no, David, you know what? People don't understand. It wasn't really, it, it doesn't fly. So what we did, what I did um, was my call, my call alone. And uh, the new cycle passed. We put a lot of things into play that made things better for customers. And, um, you know, my, my barometer is the business schools around the country who initially wrote it as a case of exactly what not to do to now the migration to those business cases actually being, you know what, um, it's never too late to do the right thing uh, kind of as a premise. And so it's a harsh and hard leadership lesson to do, especially for a storyteller, especially. But, but things move fast and we didn't understand, I think at the time, social media. Well, good for you getting to the right answer in a hurry, actually. You know, you, you, you also, a few years later, you, you had COVID hit. Now, there are a lot of industries that were affected by COVID, but your, your sales went down 93%. I mean, how did you as a leader stay positive in a time like that? I know you worked your way out of that and the industry's coming back now. But when you go back and you think about that time, you know, how did you cast the right shadow of, of leadership for the organization? Yeah, several things. Uh, and this is first harkens with building a team that is so cohesive and so in touch with each other that as soon as we have, you know, again, we face crises every day in the airliners. There's always something going on. So we are geared, I mean, post Dr. Dow, certainly, we are geared to react quickly and act accordingly. Um, we first saw after the outbreak, not only in South Korea, but in Northern Italy, we saw our metrics, our new bookings went to zero. People weren't getting on airplanes. And Italy is a lot more proximate to the US than anywhere else. So we immediately sensed that this was gonna hit the United States. And so on, those, on that day, we began to cut everything. 
We began to cut capital spending. We immediately went to the markets. We were in the market within two or three days and raised a bunch of money before anybody else even thought about it. Because what we did is simple math. It's like, what if this impacts our business 25%? How about 50? We did a scenario at 75 as a push, and you mentioned the number. It ended up being 93% down. And so we, you, you immediately went to work uh, on so many of those fronts to take your cash burn down, uh, and then begin to plan for, okay, things are cyclical. I, we, you, know, you have to believe that they, we're gonna come out of it at some point in time, but not anytime, anytime certain. And so what we had to protect first was our employees. Because obviously with a 93% drop in revenue, you gotta take cost out. And if you take cost out in an airline, these are pilots and flight attendants and technicians, all who require constant retraining, time in the air as a, as a pilot, uh, tech ops, all your airplanes need constant, you know, you can't just put things away and you can't put humans aside because you cannot come back in the business. So my conversation, our conversation with President Trump at the time and that administration, if you want the economy to return, you're gonna need your airlines and you're not gonna have your airlines if we're allowed, if we're allowed to shut everything down because it'll take months, months to get those things back and running at the same place. So we were able to effectively sell that concept and uh, again, $50 billion came the way of the industry through the CARES Act. People often uh, accuse us of, 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 of being bailed out or taking a handout. I can tell you that the state of the industry financially was never in its history in a better place than that early part of 2020. We had just delivered our numbers a year ahead of time. So there was no bailout there. And the, the ramifications of the money that we took in grants and in loans are still being paid off. Uh, compensation for em employees in the airline industry is still capped at a certain amount. So there was no bailout, there was no handout in any way, shape, or form. But it did allow the industry, uh, while we were in that situation, and certainly United, to continue to invest in the business, continue to train, and keep people sort of current on their projections, which allowed us to come back relatively quickly. You know, the job you did building the culture beforehand and then the job you did during that crisis, uh, I think, is a, is a case history for every leader to really look at because you did a fantastic job representing the industry, and I remember that very well. You know, Oscar, this has been so much fun, and I want to have some more with my lightning round of uh, Q&A here. Are you ready for this? Sure. What's one word others would use to describe you? Human. What would you say is the one word that best describes you? I'm a knucklehead. <laughs> if you could be one person for a day besides yourself, who would it be and why? I've always admired Abraham Lincoln and his Team of Rivals book and how, I, not that I would ever, you know, compare myself to him, but I always loved the way he worked through a very difficult situation and made it work. Aisle or window seat? Oh, definitely aisle. I get up and talk to people too often. <laughs> and people come to talk to me too often that it's unfair to the person in the aisle if I'm at the window. Your favorite travel destination? Uh, you know, I have four children and they always often ask who the favorite child is. Um, as an airline exec that, um, that uh, flies all over the world and has relationships all over the world, I would never admit that there was one favorite. There's such <laughs> great spots. What's something about Mexico you'd only know if you lived there? I think the depth of of personal relationships that people hold dear. It's, it's, it's a simple community with simple needs and, and people that know you will go out of their way to do everything for you. What's one of your daily rituals, something you never miss? I love TikTok at night. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it, it helps, it, it, it relieves the stress of my day. I laugh, I listen to music, I, I you know, whatever's on my little uh, channel. 
uh, and uh, that helps you go to sleep. So it's a that takes I'm, care uh, of my question is what's something yeah. about you? Few people would know uh, your favorite rock band and lyric. Oh my God, it's simple. Rolling Stones can't always get what you want, but if you try, sometimes you get what you need. <laughs> if I were to turn on the radio in your car, what would I hear? You would hear a wild mix of from EDM, which I've grown to like, a little country, certainly classic rock, uh, and a combination of, 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 of jazz and classical. And it's just, I love music. I'm, I have a zero musical ability, but I love to listen to it. <laughs> Great. That's the end of the lightning round here. Just a few more questions and we'll wrap this up. You know, uh, you and your wife, Kathy, you founded Pave It Forward. Uh, which raises scholarship funds for students who are also the the first in their family to attend a four-year university. Uh, tell us about what drove that. I think it's simple. For me, um, when I was in high school, a high school counselor approached me. Her name was Mrs. Duckworth um, and asked me where I was thinking of going to college after seeing some of my preliminary scores in the SAT. And uh, again, a true story, given the environment and background that I had from a blue-collar family, uh, Mexican-American, um, I asked, what's a college? Um, and I think uh, it, it's telling for me because that's the issue that we have in America with underrepresented minorities. They often aren't aware of the possibilities that are out there. And without her catching me in the hallway, I would have never, I would have never gone to college possibly. I would have gone on, taken a job like my dad, got married, had children, lived happily ever after. But instead, I had another choice that was offered to me. And so that kind of pave it forward is a, a non-creative play on the the movie that was there once but um you know people with with promise if we can help them um we do and and send them to college that's fantastic and uh gotta ask you this one what's one piece of advice you'd give to anyone who wants to be a better leader leadership is never about you it's always about the people that you lead and what they think we get so caught up in how did I present myself? How did I say this thing? I gave a great speech or whatever. Nothing to do with it. People don't understand me. I say, if people don't understand you or they don't get you, then you did it wrong. You should go to that immediately. Okay, what? gee, this isn't working. What have I done wrong? I, I, in my mind, that's true leadership because it's easy to blame others or do a thing. But uh, as a leader, there's no one else that's in charge uh, other than you. You know, one of nine CEOs are Hispanic. You know, what do you think has to happen to change that game? I know that's a complicated question, but if you could wrap it up quickly, what what what, what has to happen? I think it's a, a concept of recognizing the opportunity. The Latino cohort is, you know, the largest minority now, but it's not just a large size. They're, they're more affluent, more educated. They vote more. They're incredibly uh, customer loyal. They're digitally native. And uh, one of the things that, that we do at a lot of my post uh, work work has been done is about educating a lot of our, our CEOs in the country about how, how vibrant an economy this group is and why we don't market to them, why we don't cater to them and recognize them for the value they prevent. The GD, if you measure by GDP, the economic cohort, the economic Latino cohort in America, it would be the seventh largest nation in the world all in the United States. You don't have to go anywhere to attack. You just have to understand who they are. And of course, we're different, right? There's different nationalities, but there's the concept of familia is a, is a common thread that I think, uh, I, so I don't ask to give. I don't ask to, I don't want you to hire anyone. I just want you to recognize and be educated on this and market to them. And I think your business will do great by that nature. One quote that you have, which I, I, I love, is that that is what I do, but that's not who I am. Uh, and, you know, there's some powerful wisdom in that. And how would you describe what you think that is? 
I think we get caught up in our resume and all the things that we do. It's a guy named Roberto Goizueta that used to run Coca-Cola that I think would get a chance to work that work with. And he'd always ask me to look around and he'd see all these executives at Coke. And he goes, you know, what they all have in common is they really believe that they're special because they work at the Coca-Cola company and they've attained their level. What they don't know is that at some point in time, they will lose that title and that affiliation and they'll become a normal human and they'll see who they really are. He goes, don't ever let you get yourself get to the point where you, you walk around as to the person, the thing that you've done in work. The thing that people will remember is the human things that you've done. And so uh, I always say all the wonderful things that you know, you've been able to do. I, don't, I mean, yes, that's, that's great. The benefit, the impact that you've had on humans for me, the legacy that I've left at United with a, a more caring and engaged culture, and con- that's what I do. Um, and I did that on my, with my own heart and decisions, not through some strategic endeavor or initiative. And so, um, you know, uh, it's important to recognize that your titles and past titles are just that. Uh, the person that people will remember is you, the human. That's why I really am so pleased that you wrote your book, because I think when you have a leader like yourself who's had success being human, that spreads the gospel with the book like you've you've just written. I think that that makes an even greater lasting impact. So I want to thank you for talking to all the leaders that are on this show and for writing the book. And uh, I highly recommend it. And it's been great, uh, great having this conversation. So thanks. Well, as I'm sure you can hear in this conversation, Oscar is a whip-smart guy. But he got that honest feedback early in his career that really helped him see there's more to great leadership than having all the right ideas and strategies. You've got to bring people along with you if you want to make big things happen. It's your job as a leader to appeal to people's minds and their hearts. Ultimately, what makes you a leader isn't having a certain title or being super smart. It's the people around you. And the sooner you realize that leadership is about people, the more successful you'll be. Now, that's easy to say, but I know it's a heck of a lot harder to do. So this week, I want you to grab a sticky note and a marker and write yourself a reminder. Jot down these three words, hearts and minds. And as you're making decisions and having conversations, you'll remember It's not just about those ideas and strategies and technical puzzles that you've got to solve. It's also about connecting with the humans around you because you can't really solve those other problems if you don't have their trust and commitment first. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders can appeal to both hearts and minds. Coming up next on How Leaders Lead is Gil Hance, one of the world's most sought after golf architects. You need to be in the field to make decisions and you need to either if you're not there, then you have to have somebody who's empowered to make those decisions because every day something will happen on a golf course in construction. I mean, literally you put a bulldozer over the top of something and it disappears Uh, every day. The sun is going to the angles and the shadows and the wind and there's always something to be observed and learned on site our guys, our shapers, we've empowered them to go ahead and make those types of decisions that maximize the site over maximizing something that's on a piece of paper. So be sure to come back again next week to hear our entire conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday, 
You get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.